Now, follow, if you will, in your copies of God's Word, and let me read to you beginning at verse, 20, at verse 6, and we'll read to the end of the chapter of Job chapter 1. Job 1, beginning at verse 6, you follow as I read. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Ladies and gentlemen, nothing is more certain than suffering. And there is no book in all of human literature that faces that subject with more realism, with more candor, with more integrity, with more wisdom than does the book of Job. Wherever the book of Job is discussed, the one thing that people tend to fixate on, the the one thing they seem to know about this book, and, and understandably so, is, um, 
is verse 21, where the story says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Instinctively, ladies and gentlemen, I think all of us would like to know how. How did he pull that off? What kind of people talk like that in the midst of all of their pain and all of their, their, their woe? Folks, um, Job's sudden agonies are... are are too, they're, they're too many, they're too numerous, they're, they're too horrible, they're, they're, they're almost too fantastic to even, to even list. But suffice it to say um, that his whole world was turned upside down. I mean, that, that, that seems almost an, an understatement. But um, his, his whole world caves in basically overnight. He lost uh, everything in one fell swoop. His entire family of, of ten grown children are wiped away by a desert whirlwind. And in addition to um, those ten fresh graves, he's bankrupt. And, and 36 chapters of, of agonizing soul-searching will elapse before the Lord does so much as even lift a finger to try and help him or to comfort him. There are those, and and we'll see it later on in our study, that would suggest that this whole situation takes place over several months. It's it's hard to to know exactly how long it went on, but uh, there are indications that it went on for several months. Now, now guys, countless people, have, have committed suicide with far less provocation than what Job faced. And yet, Job's initial response, his, his immediate impulse, is worship. A spontaneous reaction to his, strage- to his tragedy leaps from his mouth and his soul. And, and I want to know, I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, at this point, I'm shaking my head. I'm drowning here. I mean, how, how does anyone um, handle such grief so calmly? Comparing Job's response to what mine would likely look like exposes me in a way that that nothing else can. Somebody help me. Somebody help me understand how his response could be this. And I'm pretty sure mine would be far different than that. You know, in a lot of ways, or in some ways, ladies and gentlemen, what I have to say this morning is not so much for you as it is for me. But you might want to listen in, uh, just in case. Um, just in case you think your responses would be more like mine than than like Job's. 
Let me say this kind of as an introductory summation of, of things. This man's God is bigger than mine. Long before chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41, if you know anything about the book, you'll... But long before that happens, Job's God is bigger than mine. And so what I have for you this morning is six insights, uh, suggestions, lessons, observations, call them what you want. But six things that, that I hope will begin to correct the deficiency that I, that I find in my soul, and I find it there as I look at his response to, to his suffering and his pain. So six things that I, that, I hope, that I hope will help me and I hope will help you. Because I don't know that I'm the only one who has concerns about how they would respond in the midst of suffering like this. Number one, I, I think it's fair to ask, I think it's important to ask, I think it's, I think it's helpful to ask. In this situation, is Job somehow at peace? That is, was he filled with some strange spiritual joy? No. If you look at the text and you look at verse 20, then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshiped. Now, guys, if I were to do something similar to that up here on a Sunday morning, if I would fall down flat and, and start ripping at my clothes and, and somehow start cutting at my hair, I, I bet you several of you would start dialing 911. Of course, I know that your phones are turned off at this moment, but I'm just speculating. But, um, you know, there's a, sense, there's a part of me that wants to do that. I just want to get on, I just want to fall down on the floor and, and just writhe around for a little bit and just... And just see that it, if it wouldn't shake things up a bit. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, in the, in the midst of that response, we're told in verse 22 that in all this, Job did not sin. Now, two quick observations. First of all, can true worship really take place when the heart is broken? Yes. And secondly, is there any place in worship for tears and sorrow and agony? Yes. Guys, groaning can be a part of worship, and it is here. Imagine, if you will, Mary at the cross of Christ watching her son die. You think she was grinning? Guys, just because your heart is broken doesn't necessarily mean that you've sinned. And it doesn't mean that you are not worshiping either. Which is what you see here. That's the first thing. Secondly, I, I also want to suggest that what you see on the part of Job is a practiced response. That is, it's the fruit 
of, of long years of faith and discipline on the part of Job. Job has been practicing and preparing for this moment all his life. And I think you see that in verse 5 of chapter 1. This is no Johnny-come-lately to spiritual things, ladies and gentlemen. Now, for us, as bad as our situations might be, they don't compare with what Job experienced. However, pain is pain. And, and, And a cross is a cross. And we've got to prepare for ours the same way that Job prepared for his. And and so I ask you, is God getting praise and worship from you now? Now, when, when, when my life sky is not filled with storm clouds, is he getting praise and thanksgiving from me now? Because, ladies and gentlemen, that kind of practice prepares you for days that that you might experience that are similar to this one. Thirdly, I think it might also help us if we we could understand certain things about about the mystery of suffering or the mystery of evil, however you want to term it. There's, There's two things that I want to mention about that mystery. First of all, people of faith, people of faith can and do experience horrible times of suffering. And this is the hard thing to say. They do so according to the will of God. People of faith can and do experience terrible times of suffering according to the will of God. Now, guys, if the the Bible teaches us that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, which it does in Matthew chapter 5, would it not also be true to say that the hail falls on the crops of the just and the unjust? Steve Brown, one of, one of my friends, uh, used to love to say, and still does love to say, for every non-Christian that gets cancer, a Christian gets cancer. So that the world can see the difference in how we manage it. When I first heard this story, the story I'm about to tell you, um, I was so shocked by the story that I had to go out and get the book and read it myself. I, I couldn't believe what I had heard. So I went out and I got this book and I read it. Um, the author is a woman by the name of Elizabeth Elliot. You know who Elizabeth Elliot is, uh, the wife of Jim Elliot, who was martyred by the Aka Indians, and I think in the, in the 50s, uh, there were several that were murdered that day. They flew a plane and landed them on a river, uh, riverside, and there was a, they had a rifle on the floor of the plane, and they refused to go get it because they, they knew that if, if they killed these Indians, that they would uh, perish forever but they were going to go to heaven. And so they, they, were, they were killed by poison darts, uh, her husband was. Elizabeth Elliot goes on um, uh, to write like 20 books. She has like 20 books in print. And, uh, and I don't know which one this is, which number this is, um, but she's a, she's a spokesman uh, for the Christian 
position all of the country. She's, she's quite a woman, uh, Elizabeth Elliot. Her husband wrote The Shadow of the Almighty, and, you know, anyway. Uh, this book is a, is a, is a, it's a piece of fiction. Uh, understand that. Hear me say it's fiction. But she writes this about a young woman. Her name is Margaret Sparhawk. And Margaret is a, is a young single woman who leaves everything behind. I think it's in Philadelphia or Indianapolis. She leaves everything behind. And she moves to the mission field, uh, South America, I think, the Andes. Um, and she's going to translate the Bible for, a, for a, a village full of... By the way, that's just a book, okay? Uh, she moves to this village to translate the Bible into the language of this, this tribe of Indians. And so she tries to connect uh, with somebody who can help her translate, a, a, a person or a family or somebody. And, and ultimately, the Lord brings her this family, and the head of the family is a guy by the name of Pedro. And Pedro is oh so helpful to her. He's a godsend, and, and they're just making all kinds of progress, uh, translating the New Testament uh, into the, the native tongue of this, of this little uh, group of Indians. In the course of time, uh, Pedro develops uh, some kind of infection in his leg. I think it's his knee, I, I forget, but he develops an infection in his leg. And she takes a, a, a penicillin and injects his leg with penicillin. As a result, Pedro dies. And the whole village turns against her. And um, she, at one point in the book, writes something like, um, God has written finis, finished, done, washed up, over. of All of her labors, all of her work there in this tribe. Now, that's the story in the book. But, but here's the punchline of the story. Elizabeth Elliot said, and when this book was published, that the reaction of the Christian community, nationwide, worldwide, was so negative that she got hate mail, mounds of hate mail about this book. Most of it saying pretty much the same thing, and what they were saying is, God would never let that happen to a faithful servant of his. And Elizabeth Elliot said, I found that so surprising because much of what is in this book is autobiographical. I mean, the details are different. But it was basically what has happened to me. And then she added, have they not read the book of Job? Ladies and gentlemen, people of faith can and do experience horrible times of trial and suffering and pain, and they do so according to the will of God. Now, the other thing that I, I want to suggest about this mystery of suffering and evil is, ladies and gentlemen, in the book of Job, the real struggle is not between Job and God. Do you know that? The real struggle in this book is between God and Satan. 
Verse 9 and 10 and 11, I think, yes, are critical in an understanding of the book of Job. Job appears before, I mean, Satan appears before God and says in verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? <laughs> Do you know what he's implying, don't you? You know what he's implying. Satan is implying. He's implying. In fact, he even says it. Well, who wouldn't fear you when you treat him like that? I mean, for heaven's sakes, you give him everything he wants. Why? Why? I mean, you put all this hedge around him? Why, sure. Sure, he... Uh, he, uh, he serves you because you, you only give him a bunch of good stuff. Now, ladies and gentlemen, is God, cor- I mean, is Satan correct? Is he? Well, he is, he is correct if God explains what's happening to Job. If if God somehow comes to Job and says, now Job, I know this has been really hard on you, but, but, but let me explain. You know, Job, that everything that's happening is going to turn out really good. And not only that, Job, 4,000 years from today, people are going to revere you. And Job says, oh, okay, well, now I, now I get it. Ladies and gentlemen, how often have you said, how often have we said, I could handle this if I only understood why. Ladies and gentlemen, here's what's at stake in the book of Job. Is God worth loving? Is God worth serving? Just because of himself? Or does he have to explain himself to me in all that he does? Ladies and gentlemen, when you worship God, When all that you're getting is bad, then you know you love him. Guys, one of the outcomes of this book is that that the moral supremacy of God over the devil is established. Satan loses. But guys... If we are never prepared to take one step to experience any pain unless God explains himself to us, then at best, faith is still in its infancy stages, or at worst, faith doesn't exist at all. Guys, Job doesn't even know of the devil's existence. Nowhere in this long, exhausted dialogue between Job and his friends 
is the idea of a personal, supernatural evil as much as even mentioned. Does Job ever know what we know? Apparently not. He gets no explanation. Ever. The book closes without an explanation. And so what we've got to decide is, is God worth loving and serving just for himself? Guys, I took a lot of flack for this. I took a lot of flack from my own family. Because a year and a half or so ago, I opposed that book entitled The Shack. And I went on record as saying it was awful. And it was not because God showed up as a black woman in an evening gown or a kitchen robe or whatever it was she was in. I opposed that book because of this. Does God have to explain himself to me so that I will go on and worship him? Is he worth loving? Just because of who he is. That's what's unfolding before your eyes in this book, ladies and gentlemen. Fourth. In verse 21, which is the verse that everybody seems to know about in the book of Job, he starts with the word naked. And he's not talking about spiritual nakedness, ladies. I'm excuse me, a physical nakedness. He's talking about he's talking about a feeling of of he's describing himself as helpless and, and vulnerable. He's not talking about physical nakedness. He's talking about I'm helpless and I'm vulnerable. And one of the great lessons that Job seems to understand in this book that you and I have got to come to understand, and it's this the Christian has no worldly rights. One of my heroes is a guy by the name of Dan DeHaan. I never met Dan, uh, but I've listened to some, some, some things Dan DeHaan has done. But Dan DeHaan, oh gosh, back in the 70s and the 80s, uh, had a Bible study in Atlanta with about 900 men. And he was a dude. And um, I've got a, a set of his tapes, cassette tapes, tell you how old he is, um, uh, a set of cassette tapes on a conference that he did on suffering. And um, after Dahan, uh, oh, by the way, Dan Dahan was killed. And I think it was a car accident. I forget now. But, I mean, he was, he was like low 40s. It's just so tragic, at least for me. It was, he, um, but before he died, he did this conference on suffering. And, and I don't think it was the book of Job. I think it was just on, but I forget. But anyway, he opens up the conference. After he introduces himself and says thanks to his host and all that business, he starts his conference with this sentence. We have no right to happiness. 
You okay with that? You agree with that? Guys, there's a scene in the book of Jonah, not Job, Jonah, the one that got swallowed by the whale. In the last chapter of Jonah, Jonah 4, on two occasions, verse 4 and verse 9, God approaches Jonah and he says to Jonah, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Is it? On the second occasion, it's because a plant had grown up to cover him and give him some shade. And then the plant withered and died. And Jonah was just furious. And, and, and God says, Jonah, is it, is it right for you to be angry? And the whole message behind that, ladies and gentlemen, is, is that plant yours? Are these things mine? Guys, I didn't earn them. And everything that I have is a gift of grace. And interesting, interestingly, although the word grace is never found in the book of Job, Job seems to understand something about grace, which is, that is, getting and having things that I don't deserve or I didn't earn. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I as Christians, we enjoy a whole lot, don't we? But none of it is an entitlement. And when we learn that, we're on our way. Guys, when Adam, in Genesis 3, when Adam discovered that he was naked, he hid. When Job was faced with his nakedness, He worshipped. And that is what sets the fallen man apart from the redeemed man. Arriving at the realization of my nakedness is the place when the soul begins to live. Guys, Christianity is a faith for people who have come to a complete end of themselves. And yet they love every opportunity to hear about Jesus. There are also people who know that Dan DeHaan is right. We have no right to happiness. I'm not saying that we don't have some. We just have no right to it. And when we have it, it's another gift that God has given. You got a good marriage, do you? I'm so glad. God gave that to you. You got good health, do you? Great. God gave that to you. You got a little nest egg put away? Good. God gave that to you. You got more income than you need? Good. God gave that to you. It's not mine by way of right. It's a gift. And when we learn that, we're on our way. Fifth, and this might sound a little bit 
track, uh, trite or hackneyed, but because um, uh, um, you've heard this before. Fifth, God's ways are not our ways, ladies and gentlemen. So in light of that, in trying to understand your situation, you must avoid all of those pat answers that Christians are so famous for. Like, well, you need to get back in church. Well, you don't have enough faith. Well, you need to, you need to pray more. You know, guys, religious people are just desperate to find a reason for everything. They, they, they're always trying to figure out God's ways. And, and you know, what if, you're, what if you're Job's pastor and he comes to you, what do you say to him? Pat answers, guys, are, are efforts on our parts to answer why so that we can stay in control. In, in that system, there's no room for a God who is sovereign, a God to do as he pleases without an explanation. Gang, there are good things and there are bad things. And he controls them both. We are, um, we are called as sons and daughters of the living God, to live with un, unanswered questions. Which I think the Bible calls faith. Guys, we serve a God who we can't control, and many times we can't explain. Now, by that I'm not suggesting that he's, he, he is irrational, I'm simply saying that mere rationality does not completely define him. So explaining him completely or explaining his ways completely is a fool's errand. Job is about the incomprehensible ways of God and about the praise that is due him for the good and the bad. My friends, if Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives, then he is not only to inform our thinking, he is allowed at times to override it. Sixth and final. Guys, worldly praise is one thing, and it feels good when you're praised by your, your uh, peers, does it not? Worldly praise is one thing, but the praise that comes from heaven is quite another. Job was considered, before all this happened, he was considered great among men, but he was also considered great in the eyes of God. Let me quote God out of verse 8, where he says, There is none like him on earth. Heaven says, God says, about this man, there's nobody on earth like him. <laughs> Is, is there not something shocking about that? That is, something almost unacceptable that a holy God could, should somehow declare this mere man, and, and obviously a flawed man at that, and we're going to see that in chapter 3, but that, that God de defines and declares this mere man 
as being praiseworthy, that he finds not the slightest fault in him. Shocking, perhaps. And yet, my friends, right there, you find the the unsearchable mystery of the gospel. And by that I mean this. The same imputed, impeccable righteousness that God ascribes to Job is possible, not only possible, it is the established fact of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are here today as someone who is in in love with Jesus Christ, the world is not worthy of you. But the world needs you. I'm going to close by reading just a couple of sentences on the last page of this book. Actually, it's, it's like three sentences from the end of the book. Um, Pedro is dead. The whole village has turned against her. Her work there in that village is over. And she is, she is persona non grata in this village as a result of Pedro's death. And so, right before she closes the book, uh, and this is, as I said, pretty much where the book ends She visits the cemetery where Pedro is buried. And it's brief, and and, um, she says this. And God, what about him? I am with thee, he had said. With me? In this, he had allowed Pedro to die. Or, and I could not then, nor can I today, deny the possibility, he had perhaps caused me to destroy him. And does he now, I asked myself there at the graveside, Does he now ask me to worship him? Yes. Yes, he does. Our Father, would you stir in the hearts of your people a a pure and rich love for yourself, one that um, helps us manage and handle all that we have to face because there's a whole lot of it for all of us. And uh, on this side of it, it's easy to talk big. And I pray that you will prepare us for the time that um, you will uh, give us a chance to see just how deep our love for you goes. 
And Father, for those who have come here this morning without a relationship with Christ, and yet they too will endure hardship, um, would you cause them to see that the only that the way to redeem their hardship is to know the one who suffered far more than Job, the Lord Jesus, the one on whom you turned your back, causing him to cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And at that moment, he was paying for our sins. Would you cause them to see him in all of his great beauty? And we ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.